Amen. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate you, brother. Appreciate uh, you using your gifts to come and lead us in uh, worship. Today is a uh, really special day, uh, not just because I have a suit and tie on. That's an unusual day, but not necessarily a special day. What makes it special is uh, just, the, first of all, the chance we get to participate in the two ordinances that Christ has given to the church. Uh, witnessed baptism, and that's an aspect of worship, and in a little bit here, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper, so that is always special. This evening, we're going to get to hear about what the Lord has done uh, in the lives of our students and our kids, and then we're going to get to hang out a little bit together, so it's a good day, and, and uh, glad that you're able to be here this morning. I'm going to invite you, oh, before, uh, before I do, also what makes it a special day, is uh, our transition team has kind of come to a really crucial juncture and really kind of uh, turning into the home stretch. And it might be uh, by home stretch, I don't mean we're going to be done next week, but from the very beginning, we've said that the whole purpose of the transition team was to be, help us as a church to imagine a preferred future. Where do we need to be going as a church? And so our transition team this afternoon will kind of, I've assigned them to six sub-teams, and each one of those sub-teams is going to be kind of tasked with uh, a particular, one of the six functions of the, the way we make disciples, worship, evangelism, instruction, ministry, fellowship, and missions. And so each one of those sub-teams is going to be tasked with looking at that area and saying, how do we move forward towards our preferred future as a church? And so they'll be bringing that back uh, to, uh, to you at some point, hopefully in uh, just uh, maybe, uh, hopefully by the, end of, by the time, about time school starts. And so, uh, so we'll see how that goes, but that's where we're at in that process. And so that makes today uh, a really special day as well. All right, so now I want you to turn with me to the book of Job. We're going to try and wrap up what's been a long series. I don't know, we started this series when? Uh, back in the late 90s? I don't know, it seemed a little bit, seems like we've been in it a while. Uh, but it's appropriate. You know, you know what the literal meaning of, of patience is? Patience is long-suffering. So a long series on suffering just makes perfect sense. It's giving you a chance to uh, work on your patience. And there's just so much material in the book of Job, 42 chapters. So what we've been doing is we've been pulling out swatches of things to look at to help us um, search for uh, God's path through suffering. Because that's, that's what we need is to be, uh, God show us how we get through this. And we've looked at a lot of things in regards to suffering. But today we want to look at really what is the ultimate answer to suffering. And so we're going to look in Job 38. I'm going to read a little swatch there. We're going to jump over to Job chapter 40, read a little bit there, and then we're going to wrap up with Job uh, with the 42nd chapter. So if you want to turn with me to, to Job chapter 38, and then we'll be moving to those other passages. And if you found your place in uh, God's Word, and if you're able to do so, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, 
Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Then in chapter 40, verses 6 through 12. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. And then chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the Lord's word. Would you pray with me? Lord, today, as we open up your word, Lord, we ask that you will give us understanding, but most of all, Lord, give us yourself. Reveal yourself to us today, Lord. May we encounter you and may we know your presence. For therein lies all of the answers to life's difficult questions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So if we're talking about the ultimate answer to, que- to suffering, then we have to, of course, state the question. So if you have an answer, you've got to have a question. So what is the question? What's been the question that we've been trying to address throughout all of this series? And the question is this. How can a God who is all-powerful and all-loving allow suffering? That's a question that's been asked since the beginning of mankind. It's the question that people ask every day. It's not just a philosophical question. It's not just something that people get into ivory towers and debate and come up with these, you know, uh, uh, lengthy and wordy answers. It's the question that people ask when they are going through suffering, when they are going through great difficulty. Um, it's a, it's a it's not a philosophical question. It's a question of really of practical evangelism because the people who are around you, the people with whom you work, the people with whom you shop, the people with whom you cross paths every day, uh, 
are people who have suffered great losses and they themselves are wondering in their head, if God really loves me, why is this happening to me? And if God is all-powerful, then how did, did he allow this to happen to me? It's the question. It's the question. And so we've tried to take some stabs at it in, in this series. And so today, I just want to wrap up by, by saying, what is the ultimate answer to this question of, of suffering? And really, I just want to say two things to you today along these lines to kind of frame up, the, frame up my thoughts that I want to share with you, is that first of all, we want to look at what we simply don't know. What it is that we simply don't know. We're going to look at Job. We looked at Job. What is it that we simply don't know? Because that actually exposes our hearts. And then we're going to look at what we definitely do know. Okay, so what is it that we don't know? But what is it that we definitely do know? And what we definitely do know transforms our hearts. So let's, uh, so let's jump in here, and then about uh, two-thirds of the way through, I'm going to stop, and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, okay? And we're going to encounter God in the elements, and then we'll wrap up uh, the sermon and make application of what, we've, uh, of what we've seen and what we've heard. So first, let's think about what we simply don't know. You know, one of the things that's so hard to determine in life is cause and effect, it is hard to know when you have something that happens, it's hard to know exactly what caused that thing. Now, over the years, it would seem to me that the very act of getting in the shower will cause my phone to ring. Now, that's kind of the way it seems. Because it seems like every time I get in the shower, then my phone rings. And then I'm going, oh, no, let's go. But, we, but there's no cause and effect there. You know, if, if there was cause and effect... Anytime I wanted somebody to call me, I would just go stand in the shower, and then the phone would ring. But we know there's no cause and effect. Cause and effect are sometimes hard to determine. And Job seemed to think that he understood cause and effect, but when we get to the 38th chapter of Job, God all of a sudden appears. Prior to this point, it's been everybody talking about God and everybody conjecturing about God. But all of a sudden in chapter 38, God shows up and God begins, well, he forcefully reminds Job, Job, you're not God. You're not God. One of the greatest, one of the greatest lessons, one of the hardest lessons seems to be for us to learn. We're not God. Um, it's kind of as if, and when you, when you, it's this, you look at this encounter and with God challenging Job at this point, um, it's, it's kind of like you, you can imagine a, a space launch and all of the physicists there and all the scientists are there and there's a seven-year-old kid there. And the seven-year-old kid looks at that and he goes, that, that, rocket, that rocket's never going to get off the ground. That thing is too heavy. It's not going to get off the ground. And there's a physicist standing there, and the physicist looks at the seven-year-old kid, and he's going, hey, uh, listen, kid, <laughs> I don't have time to go into all the nuances of the dynamics of propulsion for you here. But I assure you, rocket's getting off the ground. 
It was kind of like Job is like the seven-year-old kid trying to challenge the physicist. It's like a, you know, like a, a child trying to challenge Einstein. And it's just like, sorry, you really don't even know what you're talking about. You really have no clue. And we think we've got a lot. We think we understand a lot of things. But God reminded Job, Job, you really don't get it at all. Where were you? All of these things, God. Uh, all of these things, Job. Where were you when all of these things took place? Um, and, jo uh, and God says to Job, he says, Now who is this that darkens counsel? And counsel just means a plan. And Job is, has been saying to God, God, your plan is too dark. And God replies by saying, Job, hate to tell you this, buddy, but you really don't see the, you just don't see, not only do you not see the whole picture, you really don't even see most of the picture. Um, and um, it's interesting. You would think, you would think that for somebody who had suffered as much as he had suffered, that God would have come up, God would have appeared, and would have comforted Job. But he doesn't really do that. I mean, if it had been one of us, we, we would have gone to Job and we would, have gone, we would have patted him there, 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 there. But we find that God is not like a Hallmark movie. God does not, God does not come and just be soft with us at times. He really tells Job, Job, listen, this is what's going on. Um, and as we've pointed out several times through, throughout our series here, Job never understood why he suffered. Job never got to read his own book. Job had no idea what went on when God and Satan had their conversation. He had no clue. And he went to his grave not ever knowing that that had happened. And that is true of you and I. We will go to our graves not knowing the reason, the cause and effect for things that have happened in our life because there are simply things that there are things that we simply do not know. And God reminds Job, Job, you can't know these things. You're not me. But that, the fact that Job, never knowing why he suffered, that was part of the reason for all of it. You go, what in the world do you mean? Let me see if I can explain. In that initial encounter and conversation between God and Satan, Satan, because he is a cynic, because he ultimately has a low view of people. But he, but he asked a penetrating question. He said, does Job serve God for nothing? It's a pretty good question. It's a question that really gets, really gets asked of each one of us. Because here we are today. And we are serving God. And then in different ways in our lives, we serve God. We may teach. We may uh, 
lead in a ministry. We may help in certain areas. All of these different ways that we serve God. But the question then comes up, and it's a part of this whole thing about suffering. The question comes up, why? Why do I serve God? I want you to, all the way through, we read it a couple of times in the passages, you see it all the way through the book of Job, is God refers to Job always as Job, my servant. What's really at stake in all of this is why does Job serve God? Um, Is God the means to an end? In Job's life? Or is God the end, the purpose, the whole reason for it all? Question, question, we have to apply that question to to ourselves. Why do I serve God? Do I use God as a means to an end? Because is there some kind of uh, calculations going on in my head? I serve God so that God will bless me. I serve God so that God will make my life go well? Or do I serve God simply because He is God? Because, you see, now our hearts are starting to be exposed. And I don't mean our emotions. I mean our hearts. The the core motivation of everything that we do. Here's another way to think about it. Am I a worshiper or am I a consumer? Do I worship God unconditionally or am I really just a consumer trying to get things from God? Not in an overly calculated way. Nobody's got a nobody's got a chart on their wall at home that says, "Oh, yep, here I served, you know, I did this good thing and Over here on the other side, I'm going to write, here's what I got as a result. It's not like that. It's very subtle. In fact, it's so subtle sometimes that we don't even know our own hearts. But what we saw in Job is, is that suffering brings all of that to the surface. Here's the question. When will our service and worship Be only for love. Only for love. When will our worship and our service only come from love for God? Charles Spurgeon was a great English preacher. And he told a story one time in one of his sermons. And he told a, a, a story about a king. And this king, there was a peasant in his kingdom, and this peasant was a gardener. And one day, this peasant gardener grew a carrot that was simply astounding. It was the largest carrot. It was, the thing was huge. It was just an anomaly. It was an outlier. And so as the king is making his way one day through the town, the, 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 the peasant comes and approaches him and kneels before him and says, Your Majesty, Your Highness, I want to give you this carrot. Your Majesty, this carrot is the most, it's the, the largest carrot that I've ever grown. It's the largest carrot that I ever will grow. And Your Majesty, I want you to have it. And the king was a very discerning man. 
And he perceived that this gardener was giving this to him completely, completely out of love. And so he says, thank you. And as, uh, as the peasant was about to walk away, he said, wait just a minute. He said, you know, I happen to know that on the plot of land where you, that small plot of land that you work, he said, I happen to know that there's a large plot of land right beside it, and I own that. And I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to give it to you, and you can use it, and you can use that to help feed your family, and, and, and that was an incredible blessing. And so, as the king is telling the peasant this, there is a prince who is part of the entourage, and he's listening to this. And he says, oh my goodness. And this particular prince raised horses, beautiful, valuable horses. And he said, oh my goodness. He said, if that's what you get for a carrot, man, just think what I might get for a horse. So the next day, he approaches the king and he brings this horse. He says, your majesty, this is the, the most valuable, the most beautiful, the best horse I've ever had, that I've ever had, that I ever will have. And your majesty, I want to I give it to you simply because of my great love. King says, thanks a lot. Turns to walk away. And the guy's like, going, what is going on here? But the king immediately, he knows. And he stops and he turns back and he looks at him and he says you know the peasant gave the carrot to me but you gave the horse to yourself and Spurgeon followed up and he said you know what when you feed the poor if you feed the poor for any reason other than love for God, you feed yourself. And when you go and you clothe the naked, but if you do it for any other reason than love for God, then you clothe yourself. And that applies to everything that we do. If we do it for any reason other than love for God, we're just doing it for ourselves. And suffering of, is the eventual exposure of our hearts. We don't know it when times are good, but suffering will bring to the surface, do I give the carrot to the king because I love him or because I think I'm going to get something for it? Does Job serve God for nothing. And if we just stopped right there, that would be incredibly depressing. But you got to get there. We're not even ready to have our hearts changed until we get there. And the gospel brings us there if we'll listen. But not only must our hearts be exposed, but they have to also be transformed. And that's the second thing that needs to be said today. Not simply what we don't know. We don't, we don't have all of the answers to everything that goes on. But part of not knowing exposes our hearts. 
Because if I have to have an answer for everything, that calls my love for God into question. But here's what we definitely do know. What we definitely do know is found in verses chapter 38, verse 1, and chapter 40, verse 6, where God showed up. God showed up, and this gives us the key to encountering God in a way that changes our hearts. See, ultimately, the only answer that Job ever got was God. Not, a, not an intellectual answer. He never, he never got to read his own book, but he encountered God, and it was enough. The presence of God was enough. And so when we come to chapter 38, verse 1, and chapter 40, verse 6, by this point, Job is already convinced of the size of God, and he knows that God is all-powerful, but he has to know something else. So look, you see two things there. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said. You see two things there. First of all, what you see is God as all-powerful. Remember, remember, the question in suffering is, how can a loving God allow this to happen? Is God not all-powerful? Is God not all-loving? Job encounters God, and he discovers both things. First of all, God is all-powerful. Uh, it says there that the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. God shows up as a storm. You know, the average hurricane, in the average hurricane, and I don't, seems weird to say any hurricane is average, but in the average hurricane, the, the power that's there is like a 10 megaton nuclear warhead going off every few minutes. There is incredible power in a hurricane, and God shows up like a hurricane. And he shows up in infinite majesty and infinite holiness and infinite justice. But he shows up in a particular way. And the, the, what, the, what verse 1 out of chapter 38 says, Then the Lord, and if you notice in your Bible, the word Lord there is in some unique capitals. It's not just capital L, then all lowercase. It's... It's in some, some, some kind of lowercase capitals there. And anytime you see that in the Bible, what that is telling you is that that is God's special name. When Satan talks to God, and when he refers to God, he simply called God as Elohim. But this word is the word Yahweh, not used by Satan. Satan can't use the word Yahweh. Because he doesn't have the special, intimate relationship with God. And we see that in not only does God show up as all-powerful, but God shows up as all-loving. The Lord, the Yahweh, answered. And that is his covenant name. It's given to those to whom the Lord has already accepted and received. That's what Yahweh is. Yahweh is God's special name that he gives to those people with whom he is already in covenant relationship. Those that he has already received. Those that he has already accepted. That is a name of intimacy. Job realized God was all-powerful. But over in 
chapter 42, verse 6, it says, Then Job answered the Lord. And you see that same word there. It's that same small, cap, small capital word, Yahweh. It is God's intimate name. And that is how Job is not destroyed. Not only God's great power is there, but Job is not destroyed because he is in covenant with God. He is loved by God. He has been received by God. He is in relationship with God. He sees, Job sees, both the greatness of God, but also the grace of God. And at that point, Job's explanation for everything that's happened is no longer important to him. Job, Job no longer says, you know, I, I demand to know why all of this has happened. He's no longer interested. You know what else Job is no longer interested in? Him being vindicated. Read through the whole book and Job is constantly saying, I want to be vindicated. I want, I want, it, to know, I want it to be known. I'm not guilty of sin. These bad things didn't happen to me because I'm a secret sinner. Those were the two things throughout the book that Job keeps hammering on. An explanation and vindication. He encounters God and all of a sudden neither of those things are important at all to him anymore. When you see God in this way, all-powerful, holy, righteous, ruling over the universe, but all-loving, all-gracious, bringing us to himself. That's the gospel. That's the cross. That's what takes place at the cross. Where God in his holiness takes upon himself. He was in Jesus reconciling the world to himself. Perfect holiness. Perfect love coming together. Every religion in the world comes down on one side or the other of those. Most people that you'll talk to will come down on one side or the other. Most people will either be a legalist. They'll come down on the side of God's holiness. God's laws. You've got to keep God's laws. Or they'll come down on the love, the side of God's love. Well, you know, we just all need to just live our lives. No, the gospel brings both of these things perfectly together. And it both simultaneously humbles us because we know we've broken God's law. We know we can't stand before Him. But it also exalts us. Because God thought we were so valuable that He sent His own Son to bring us back to God. So it makes God to be holy and loving towards us. And that changes everything. But most importantly, it changes our hearts. And that is the gospel. And so we're going to celebrate the gospel. We're going to celebrate what Jesus did for us through the bread, through the cup, these things reminding us God is holy. 
God doesn't just give us a pass. So, God the Son came and gave himself on our behalf, satisfying the holiness of God, demonstrating the love of God, bringing us back to the Father. I'm going to ask our deacons if you would come forward at this time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. As we prepare to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, let me just say that the table of the Lord is open to believers. None of us should partake without faith, without repentance. But we invite all who are sincerely seeking the Lord Jesus to come to his table with the assurance that he who came into the world to be the Savior of all will in no wise cast them out. Come to the sacred table, not because you must, but because you may. Come to this sacred table, not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because any goodness of your own gives you a right to come, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love Christ and want to love him more. Come because he loves you and gave himself for you. Let the bread and the cup be symbols of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Spirit. Pray with me, please. Father God, as we uh, come before you today, Lord, I just ask that you deal with, deal with each and every one of us in our own way. Help us to get our hearts right in this time of our church. Lord, I just thank you and praise you for all that you have done for us and that you will continue to do for us even when we don't know. We know you have a plan. We thank you so much for bringing everyone here today to partake in this Lord's Supper. And it's in your name I pray.
So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Where my trophies at last I'll lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange So I'll cherish the old rugged 
John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Brother Jack, would you pray for the bread, please? Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this day. We just thank you, God, for your blessings. We just pray to be with us, Lord. We go to the Lord's Supper. Just help us, Heavenly Father, and change them in our lives. Just please produce for us sin against you. Thank you for sending your son and down across our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, This is my body, which is given for you. Take and eat in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. First John 1 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. Father, we are grateful for your love. We thank you for this opportunity to take these elements to, uh, to commemorate, Father, what you've done for us. We thank you for your precious blood that has cleansed us from all sin. And, and Lord, we are forever indebted to you for that gift. Just ask you to bless this now as we take these elements. In Jesus' name. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood, which is shed for you. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you, and be thankful. As the disciples were gathered there that night in unity, we're reminded that this morning we have partaken together. So let this word be an admonition as we uh, conclude the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren, love one another earnestly from the heart. Rodney, would you close us in a word of prayer, please? Dear Heavenly Father, I just come to you today with a prayer of thanksgiving. I just thank you for healing our dry, thirsty land. And I especially thank you for healing our dry, thirsty souls. I thank you for the cross. And I thank you for the service we have today and seeing the bread and the cup and the symbol of the baptism. What a wonderful sight. I especially thank you, Lord, that we serve a risen Savior. And I ask that you lead our church and that we humble ourselves enough to follow you, Lord, and follow your path that you have for us, Lord. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Job didn't have the opportunity to participate in the Lord's Supper as we have, but he had an encounter with God in which he understood that this God, this great God, this holy God, this God of, who over, was over everything, loved him, was with him. And he rejoiced and he celebrated in that. But that wasn't the end of the story. If you remember, Job had some friends, except they weren't very friendly to him. As we read in chapter 42, verses 7 through 10, we find that Job's encounter with God changed him. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Tiamite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for what you have spoken of me, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has." So Eliphaz the Tiamite and Bildad the Shuamite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And God restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends.
greatest test of a changed heart. The greatest test of whether or not we have actually encountered God here today is a willingness to forgive. To forgive those with whom we have taken offense. And this is so vital, I just need to, as we wrap up here, unpack it for you just a little bit. In every offense, it comes down to this. In every conflict, every thing where there's been a uh, offense given, offense taken, it always comes down to really one question. Who's going to pay? Who's going to pay? Because if we're talking about a situation where there is a need for forgiveness, then there's been some loss, some kind of loss. Maybe it was a, a loss of reputation. Maybe somebody said something about you. Maybe it was a loss of presence. Maybe this person withdrew from you. Maybe this was someone with whom you had lived and been in a covenant relationship for years. And then they decide to break that covenant. Could be a loss of reputation. Could be a loss of presence. Could be a loss of opportunity. Maybe this person said something or did something that caused you to lose an opportunity. Kept you from achieving something that you had set your heart on, maybe even something that you feel like God had called you to. But in every, in every situation where there is offense, there is always a loss. And there is a sense of that person owes me. They owe me. So the question then is, who's going to pay? And we really have one of two ways that we can do this. You can try and make them pay. You can talk about them. You can snub them. You can maneuver yourself in the relationship so as a way to say, they're going to pay for what they did. And there's not a person here this, this morning that has not been in that situation and not said in their heart, they're going to pay. They're going to pay for being stubborn. They're going to pay for being ignorant. They're going to, be, they're going to pay for being rude. They're, whatever. But they're going to pay. So that's one way is you can try and make them pay. The other way, the second way, is you pay. You bear the cost. You suffer. You forgive. By an act of the will. Jesus reminds us that uh, in, uh, in our relationship with him. Mark chapter 11 verse 25. And when you stand praying. When you're having your encounter with God. Your time with God. When you stand praying. Forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your transgressions. What, what does that mean? What does that verse mean? Here's what I think that it means. 
that when I am unwilling to forgive, when I am unwilling to bear that cost, God hits the pause button on my relationship of intimacy with Him. I'm not saying, I'm not saying God takes away my salvation. I'm saying God hits the pause button. I have this intimate relationship with God. I know Him by name, just like Job knew Him by name. But if I say, no, 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 they're going to pay. God hits the pause button. You say, but I'm right. You may very well be. But if you'll notice that once Job had encountered God, he never spoke another word about his own vindication. Which is more important? To be right or to have God? So either they pay or you pay. And you pay, I pay, by holding our tongue, by refraining from vengeance. vengeance. And that is truly painful. But what, we, what have we celebrated here this morning? We're celebrating that someone paid the debt for us. That Jesus paid the debt. That he suffered. We've been in this long series on suffering. But ultimately, the suffering that truly matters is the suffering that Jesus did on my behalf. And it's only that that can cause a human heart to say, I'll suffer, I'll bear it, I'll forgive. All of this talk about the power of the gospel, all of this talk about the, the resurrection life of Jesus in the church, really, it doesn't mean a thing unless I'm ready to forgive. Because that is the test of whether my heart has been changed. The presence of God is the answer to suffering. But forgiveness is the answer to what plagues any church that needs to be renewed. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me for a moment. After your encounter with God today, what's next? What's next for you? After we've worshiped and we've sung about the greatness of God, after we've heard God's word speak to us, the God who both thunders in majesty but whispers with love. After all of that, what's next? 
we're going to have a time of invitation. We always do. Because the question is always, what's next? The question is always, Lord, what would you have me to do? So, ask Jesus right now. Jesus, what do you want me to do? It may involve you doing something in the next 30 seconds. It may involve you doing something at a later date. But purpose in your heart that you're going to do it. Tell another person. If it's something that is going to be done at a later date, tell another person that you're going to do that and ask them to hold you accountable to it. And then do it. And whatever it is that Jesus tells you to do, always do it in the knowledge that he's gone first. He always goes first. He goes ahead. And someday when we get to heaven, he'll be there waiting for us because he loves us. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a chance today to just be reminded how important it is to be reminded of what you have done for us. Lord, we struggle in this world. We struggle in relationships. We struggle in church. We struggle with ourselves. But when we see you, broken, bleeding, crying, we're reminded that we're not alone. Thank you for that. Lord, whatever you're saying to each heart here 